Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Today, here on Cincy Business Talk with Mike Roth, Cincinnati's most experienced Sandler trainer. We'll be talking to business leaders about how they have grown their businesses and people. We discuss new strategies, tactics, and philosophies which lead to positive growth in our marketplace. Our program is sponsored by Sandler Training by Roth & Associates. Each week, we'll talk with our best Cincinnati area top executives about their tools and insights. Our regular listeners will be given the edge that will help them win in a competitive environment which we live. Simple solutions to complex problems which challenge all of us are rarely correct. We will address complex problems or opportunities with appropriate solutions. If you have questions or comments, contact Mike at MikeRoth at RothConsulting.net or call Mike at 513-753-9400. Now your host, Cincinnati's most experienced Sandler trainer, Mike Roth. Thanks, Scott. This is Mike Roth. I'm here today with Walter Becker. Thanks for joining us today, Walter. Pleasure. And uh, before we get started with the show, I think I'll uh, tell our listeners uh, who's going to be coming up uh, in the next couple of weeks. Tomorrow's show, we're going to have Richard Puzo. He owns uh, Sky Eye Weather. He is the ex-weatherman from Channel uh, 19. Some of you have probably seen him on the air. He's got a business where he uh, forecasts weather for companies where weather is important, maybe like golf courses and tea times. On July 5th, we're going to have Jim Semino, the owner of Executive Search, and Jim is going to be talking about a strategic planning process with me for small and medium-sized business to foster growth now that the worst of the economic depression is over. It's supposed to be recession. Recession. Yeah, for some people it was depression when business is off 50%. I think we have Rich Flynn uh, scheduled for July 6th. He's a CPA. And on uh, the the 12th of July, we have Marjorie Wade Barrett, who is a business etiquette person. I wanted to have her on because I think business etiquette and doing the right thing is really important. Don't you, Walter? I certainly do. Got to do the right thing. Great, great. Later uh, in July, we're going to have Ruth Ella Bush on, and she is a, a, a EMDR therapist. That means eye movement desensitization and reprocessing, getting our salespeople to do the right thing at the right time, getting to pull the trigger. On July 26th, we have Jody Schmidt-Gosling from Possible Worldwide. She's the Eastern president. She's going to be talking about the world of marketing and advertising. Sounds like you've got a great... Uh cast there. I have to make sure I listen. Yeah, well, I want a whole lot of more people than 1,700 people to be listening. We've actually booked most of August up so at this point in time, so I'm, I'm real glad about that, and we got a couple of dates in August that are open, but I think that'll fill up next week. Just as a way of introduction, for those of you listening who don't know Walter, Walter Becker is a partner in, a, in the business brokerage firm of Becker and Beggs. Today, he's going to discuss with us the uh, strategic and financial aspects of preparing your business for sale. Walter's got over 40 years of experience in various planning, consulting, and financial management positions. Jim Beggs is Walter's partner, and he's focused on business financing and using leveraged leasing and secured lending for over 30 years. He has, uh, in the past, structured uh, as a business broker, uh, in, independent ownership investments and equipment leases. Walter, how did you two uh, get together? How did you and Jim form this company, Becker and Beggs? Well, we started uh, by meeting on the uh, tennis court, as a matter of fact. And uh, I was in the business brokerage world, as was Jim. And uh, after about, oh, several months, we decided to join up. And there it is, Becker and Beggs. Met on the tennis court. Okay. And what were you doing before you formed the business? Well, before I formed, I started off as a CPA with Ernst and 
Ernst and Ernst when I started with them. Okay. Ernst and Young now. And after about uh, 18, 19 years with Ernst, I uh, wound up coming to Cincinnati as a chief financial officer over at Central Trust. Okay. And then uh, leaving Central Trust after several years uh, into the business brokerage world. Good, good. In a, in a typical year, how many firms do you guys actually help? We wind up, well, helping is one thing. Uh, helping to sell, we probably wind up selling uh, four to six firms in a year. We wind up helping uh, uh, several more than that by doing financial analysis and evaluations for them and just giving them some advice. Sure. How long does it typically take to uh, to sell a firm? Uh, it's, From the uh, first time you meet someone until you've got a transaction completed. It, it varies, uh, obviously, but uh, it uh, almost never goes faster than a couple of months. and. Uh, uh, it uh, rarely goes beyond nine or ten months. Okay. Uh, so usually it's less than a year. Less than a year. If it's going to sell. Right. Right. Uh, our business is selling well right now? They sell pretty well if you've got a decent business and it can be financed. They sell right well. And it's a little more busy this year than it had been in last. Mm-hmm. Um, I've heard in the past that most businesses, are small businesses, are are sold using seller financing. Is that still the case? Well, if you're going to get the highest price, you're going to have some seller financing. Uh, We ideally like to get a a bank or institution to do the bulk of the financing. But if you're going to, again, as I say, get the really best, highest price, the seller's got to uh, jump in and do a little bit of financing as well. Uh, Are banks and other financial institutions interested in financing business purchases? Yes, they are. They're they're interested. Uh, usually, uh, more often than not, a small small business is going to be financed through uh, SBA, mm-hmm. and uh, the bank uh, usually has an SBA officer who takes care of that. So, when you say small, a lot of people don't understand that. How many millions of dollars, or what's the range for small? Well, they range uh, several hundred thousand dollars as a small business, and uh, up to maybe a uh, million dollars would be a small, medium-sized business. So a business that's four or five million dollars a year would, would have a better chance of sale. Well, when you say four or five million dollars a year, typically there you're talking about the sales as opposed to the value. So when I say small, I'm talking about value as being several hundred thousand to a million. The sales for those businesses will vary depending on the nature of the business. Sure, sure. Uh, for our uh, listeners, maybe you could explain that. Uh, before tax and depreciation thing uh, that most businesses get sold on. What is it called? EBITDA. EBITDA. Earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization. Right. Right. That's a little uh, tricky term, and uh, uh, but it's explicit, and that is the basis upon which you begin to analyze a company. You've got to adjust that before you wind up with a number that... Uh, is the basis for selling, but that's where you start. That's where you start, and, and that includes the owner's draw. It typically includes the owner's draw, so you've got to know that you're talking about EBITDA uh, and not the uh, owner's uh, operating benefits, uh, which doesn't include his draw. So a real small business, many times an owner will be thinking about the uh, his discretionary cash flow. Mm-hmm. So you've got to deduct something for what the owners need to earn. Right, right. And other expenses. Sometimes in, in Cincinnati, I, I couldn't believe it when I moved here 20 years ago, the number of family-owned businesses. Oh, and, yeah. And there were ghosts on the payroll. <laughs> well, but I went in to train them, you know, and I discovered there were two or three ghosts. Well, that can happen, certainly, with a small family-owned business. But we've got to adjust all that out. If we're going to sell a company, we've got to make the adjustments to get that EBITDA down to reality. Mm-hmm. Adding back things like depreciation, deducting things like working capital requirements and capital expenditures, among other things. You deduct those? Got to deduct them to say, here's what your cash flow is going to be. Mm. The buyer needs to know at the bottom line what is the cash flow he's going to have to support the loans he's going to make mm-hmm. and his own salaries, much less a return on his investment. 
Okay. So, so what type of businesses do you normally represent? We represent a wide variety of businesses. Uh, I guess uh, we uh, represent businesses that are manufacturing, uh, retail, distribution, construction, service businesses, uh, retail, uh, information technology. We've done a few information te- IT, as it's called, uh, and uh, and some professional businesses. Mm-hmm. How large are the IT businesses that you typically sell? They are. They vary. Uh, right now, the ones we've sold uh, vary from small. The last one we sold was very small. It had sales of about two hundred thousand dollars. The one before that had sales of about three million. Mm. So uh, it depends on the individual IT business. Obviously, each one is different. Yeah, I was talking to an IT business owner yesterday, uh, and in my short conversation with him, I discovered that over 80% of his revenue came from exactly one account in a four or five million dollar a year business. That's always a uh, question and a little risky for a buyer when you've got uh, one big elephant in the room, so to speak. Uh, you'd like to have, uh, you know, 50 or 100 customers, so you yeah. don't have that risk. Right. That's that, that was terribly risky, and I, and I got into a whole conversation with him. Why are why is he hiring a number of salespeople to uh, turn this four million dollar a year business that, that I think has a depressed value because it's only got really one customer and the business doesn't exist without sure. that one customer or or exists only in a really small scale. Uh, what are the, the exact type of business brokerage services that your firm uh, provides to clients? Why well, would they Why would they select you? Well, uh, we uh, provide a variety of, of, of services. Uh, we do uh, mainly, we're talking about seller representation, where we do an analysis of the business and uh, we uh, represent the seller. We do mergers and acquisitions. We do joint ventures. We uh, represent the seller primarily, but we also do uh, buyer searches and we do uh, business valuations. We call them brokers' estimates of price. We are not doing an, a theoretical valuation, but we are doing a, a price that the business is going to sell for on the street today, not a theory. And uh, that's the kind of uh, work that we do. Hmm. Okay, so we had a, an unusual case where a uh, a buyer wanted to buy a business but didn't want the seller to know that it was him that was buying. Say that again. A buyer was buying a business? Wanted to buy a business from a seller in a different state, but didn't want the buyer to know who the purchaser was going to be. That's uh, certainly unusual. I've not run across that because typically the the, uh, buyer wants to talk directly to the seller and find out a little more detail about what's going on in the business. We we tend to write it up and uh, describe the business in pretty complete detail in our write-up, our what we call confidential business summary, which takes uh, from 10 to 20 pages, uh, but we never cover everything. So a uh, buyer wants to have a personal heart-to-heart talk with that seller. This buyer feels that if he did that, he'd be playing open-hand poker, and the seller would dramatically raise the sell price because of who he is, A, or B, uh, not sell at all based on who he is. You may not have a good relationship with him. Well, that's certainly Actually, possible. They have, a, they have a pretty good relationship. Well, but <laughs> it's a relationship based on product A and product B is in the wings and the seller doesn't know the real value of his company. Well, that's uh, that's a shame. Sellers should know the value, and that's part of the service that we provide is to determine the value, and we've got that analysis done such that the seller can look at it, we can explain it to them. More often than not, as a matter of fact, as you might expect, a seller believes his company is worth uh, two, three, or five times what it really is worth. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We do that analysis, put it all down on paper, and show the seller what the value is in fact. Right, and uh, some companies show up at different values. Uh, Walter, I'm going to tell the folks what number they can call in if they would like to uh, ask you a direct question. 
That number is 646-595-4916. So if you have a question for, for Walter or me, uh, again, number 646-595-4916. We're going to uh, listen to a, uh, a couple of uh, Sandler commercials. This is Mike Roth, Cincinnati's most experienced Sandler trainer. Many salespeople tell us business was really easy. They likened it to gathering fruit in an orchard full of ripe trees. They gathered the low-hanging fruit. They had to get baskets to pick up the fruit that was already fallen. They never had to climb a tree. They worked this way for 10 or 15 years. Given the strong economy, this was no problem. What are you hearing now? The economy has slowed down. Salespeople are competing on price. There's still business now, but salespeople have to work harder. The fruit has not fallen from the tree, and there's no low-hanging fruit. The fruit is there, but it's higher up in the tree. The problem is, their salespeople have forgotten how to climb. Do your salespeople know how to climb? If you or your team needs to learn how to climb through and up out of tough economic times, call me, Mike Roth, at 513-646-6523, or check our website at rothconsulting.net. This is Mike Roth, Cincinnati's most experienced Sandler trainer. At the first sign of trouble, there are three types of business leader. The first type of leader is like a turtle. He pulls his head and tail in and hides in his shell. Turtles hunker down, just trying to survive. The second type of leader is an opportunist. They're like eagles. Eagles spread their wings and take advantage of the winds. They catch the storm wind and rise to new heights. The third group, between turtles and eagles, are called turkeys. Turkeys are average and anxious. They huddle together and move. They never saw. However, turkeys are easy prey for those who seize the opportunity and soar. If someone in your industry goes out of business, are you going to get the business? The question is, which type of leader are you? Will you seize the opportunities to take market share and grow, or will your fate be like the turkeys? If you're serious about growth, call me to arrange a confidential meeting, 513-646-6523, or check our website at rothconsulting.net. This is Mike Roth. I'm back here with Walter Becker. Walter, why don't you tell folks in the audience how they can get a hold of you? Sure. That's a pleasure. Uh, they can get a hold of uh, me or my partner uh, on the net at uh, beckerbags.com. That's all one word, beckerbags.com. Uh, they can get a hold of me personally with wbecker at beckerbags.com or with a phone call, 621-0004. That's area code 513 6210004 Good. Uh Walter, a lot of people may be considering uh selling the business or trying to figure out how much it's worth because you said earlier that business owners typically think their their business is worth uh, three or four times what it actually is, uh, which is a problem. Uh I, I guess that's a really big problem for uh buyers and sellers. Uh How do you start with a, a a seller in doing evaluation of his business? Well, the first thing we like to do is uh, get to the strategic concepts that he ought to go through. And what I mean by that is the first thing is really to have a business owner clearly disguise, I'm sorry, clearly define what is incenting him to want to sell. Mm-hmm. So it could be something like his health, his age, uh Maybe he's just burned out. Many times you get someone who's relatively young in his mid-40s who's been doing the same thing for 20 years is just absolutely burned out. It could be many other things. Uh, Health-related issues. Health-related issues. His partner could have died. Uh, uh, maybe it's just competition, and he doesn't have the energy to uh, face up to the competition. At any rate, the point is to clearly define in his own mind what it is and the reason for his selling, because everyone is going to ask him that question, and you ought to have the answer pretty clear, straightforward, and honest. Obviously, the next thing we suggest is that he wants to uh, talk to his family, particularly his spouse. I say his because more often than not, the business is owned by a, a guy, but uh, if it's well, owned by a woman, you know. That's, that's been changing. It has been changing, as a matter of fact. Uh, just got a call today of a woman who's decided to sell her business, and uh, she's not married, so she doesn't have to talk to her spouse. 
but you should talk to your family. Well, sometimes they have to talk to their significant other. Significant other, certainly. And then finally, or not necessarily finally, but the next thing uh, that a buyer or a seller should do is to develop his own plan. What he's going to do after he sells the business. What kind of activity is want to become involved in? Uh, you know, some want to go play golf. Others want to uh, travel a lot, maybe uh, write a book or whatever, but have to decide what he wants to do, he or she wants to do, decide where he wants to do it, mm-hmm. and at the end of the day, decide how much it's going to take to maintain his lifestyle doing what he wants to do. So after people do that, to some people decide they're not going to sell. That's right. That's right. We have, you know, a, a large active Rotary Club here in Cincinnati, and on August 3rd, I've invited the uh, new president of Rotary, uh, Don Keller, from Haber Investments, to come on the show, and we're going to talk about Rotary Club. And we, we, we've had several people in the Rotary Club who've actually sold their businesses uh, in their late 50s and uh, spend a lot of time working on Rotary activities. So that, that, that's a real big positive of our community. Uh, what are some of the first things that a business owner should uh, think about in selling his business? Well, st- staying with that strategy, the concept of, you know, once he's decided what the reason for selling, he's talked to the people in his family, uh, he's uh, decided what he wants to do, he needs to sit down and look at his business uh, and look at things that he probably thinks he really, really knows, but it's best to sit down and take another clear look at the various items. For example, he might have to sit down, think about the products or services that he provides in terms of what the value really is to his customers. He needs to write that down so that he can think that through clearly. More often than not, the business owner has been so busy just selling or running the business that he hasn't thought clearly about what is the real value he's providing to to his customers. A lot of times I hear that the the best potential buyer for a business are the business's own competition. Yes. Is that still true? That is certainly true. Uh, uh, It's true and there's a downside to that. That is to say, uh, a competitor may say, well, gee, I don't have to pay that for the business. I'll just do it myself. I'll just steal the accounts. Right, right. So uh, more often than not, uh, we're going to wind up selling a business to uh, not necessarily a direct competitor, but perhaps someone in an associated business or, or one who is not competing in the same uh, environment that uh, the business owner is operating in. Yeah, when I, when I sold my business in California 20 years ago, I was told by my Sandler trainer to go find someone who didn't need to buy my business but might have some tertiary interest in it and sit down and have meetings with them. Well, I found exactly two people that qualified in the whole city of Los Angeles. And the first guy really had no interest, so it was a short meeting. The second guy, the business that I had was a phone interconnect company and a computer networking company. The, uh, the, guy, the second guy that came in to talk to me was a a uh, AT&T value-added reseller sold their Lennox computer systems, and they were after him to sell phone systems. Hmm. I found a lot of problems in his head about the pressure that AT&T was putting on him. Before the end of the meeting, he threw a $10,000 check down on the desk and said it's not a bind or a security deposit. It's just good faith money. And he asked me to not talk to anyone else about buying my business until after his lawyer and his accountant talked to my lawyer and my accountant. I picked up the check, put it in my pocket. I said, no problem, because <laughs> I had no one else to talk to. <laughs> Three weeks later, the business was sold. There you go. Good. Three weeks. Three weeks. That's that's quick. Now, it, you bring up an interesting point. Well, there. I looked for buyers with business brokers for six months, and, and they, they didn't bring a single qualified buyer in. Well, that's an interesting point that you wound up talking to a couple of people yourself. Uh, we uh, will normally uh, put out an uh, indication of a business for sale to hundreds, maybe thousands of prospects mm-hmm. or 
uh, folks who are influential. In other words, where we start off, just to back up for a minute, we start off with a short one-page, what we call flyer, in which we don't specify the name of the company or the exact location, but very general kind of comments about the nature of the business and the kind of profitability that it might have to determine some prospects. So we would like to start with uh, maybe a hundred prospects that we think are real. We might send it out to several hundred other lawyers, accountants, uh, brokers of other kind uh, in order to wind up with perhaps 20 really seriously interested prospective buyers. Along with that flyer, we have a confidentiality agreement. If they sign that, send that in, then we will be prepared to send them what we call our full confidential business summary, which, as I said a moment ago, could be uh, 10 to 20 pages that really describes the business in, in detail. So do you charge the business owner to provide that service? Yes. Typically, uh, our charge for that is really a, uh, a small, relatively small retainer, several thousand dollars just as a retainer. Our real fee comes when we sell the business. We get a percentage of the sale. So we effectively become a partner to the business owner. We're looking for that price to be as high as possible. Since we're getting a percentage of it, the business owner is looking for it to be as high as possible because he's getting it all. So the, you are the agent uh, for the business owner, the seller. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, you ever run into situations where there's an agent for the buyer? Yes. Like an attorney or an accountant? Yes. Uh, oftentimes the, uh, the buyer will have, uh, certainly almost most of the time, he'll have an, an accountant and or an attorney to review and give him advice on, say, is this a reasonable price? Is it structured properly? Is the kind of business that he should buy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And in today's marketplace, are more businesses going on the marketplace or are there more buyers in the market? Is it a seller's market or a buyer's market? It's always a, uh, a, a buyer's market, you might say, because uh, if you walk down the street, I think every other person you talk to would say, yes, he'd be interested in buying a business until you tell him about you know exactly what kind of business he's interested in buying. Um, so, as I say, a lot of folks out there are ready to think they're ready to buy a business. Uh, we like to find a business that's uh, successful with the owner motivated to sell and who will accept a realistic value for the business. Okay. Let's take a uh, another break and uh, we'll listen to a, uh, a San LaRue. We'll listen to San LaRue 18 today. Again, if you want to call in and ask Walter a direct question, you can at 646 646- Five nine five four nine one six and alpha rule number eighteen. Hey, I'm Eddie Huff from Sandler Training, here to talk about rule number eighteen. Don't paint seagulls in your prospect's picture. Have you ever jumped in with a great idea that killed your sale? Let me tell you a story, a story about Nancy. Nancy's a second grader in the public school system. She's just finished art class, and she's painted a pretty good picture. It's got a house and sun in it, but it's all over here on the left side. Nancy's art teacher comes by and says, oh, Nancy, that's a very nice picture, but honey, you need something over here on the right side to balance it out. She picks up a paintbrush and paints a seagull over on the right side of the picture. Nancy's very upset. She goes home. That night at the dinner table, Nancy's very quiet. And she pulls out her picture, except it's all folded up into a small square. The dad unfolds it and says, Nancy, darling, that is a beautiful picture. Very well done. And I especially love the seagull. Well, Nancy bursts into tears, leaves the room. He finds out that the reason she's so upset is because she didn't like the seagull. You see, Nancy didn't put it there. A teacher did. The point is, your prospect has a picture of their needs before you show up for the sales interview. If you start painting seagulls into your prospect's picture, they're going to become just as uncomfortable as Nancy. Every time you make a change to their picture, it leads to mistrust. It leads to rejection of your products and your services. 
Look, if their picture needs adjusting, instead of telling them or painting a seagull on their picture, let's do it indirectly. Let's help the prospect discover it on their own. Rule number 18, don't paint seagulls in your prospect's picture. Mike Roth, I'm back with uh, Walter Becker, and uh, gee, if you wanted to call in, you'd be, probably be first, uh, 646-595-4916. Uh, Walter, in uh, today's marketplace, what is the most single most important uh, financial aspect in selling a business? Well, the the most important financial aspect in selling the business, there there are five of them actually. The first one is price. The second one is price. And the next three are also price. So that is the most important thing. Now, when I say price, Mike, I'm talking about the actual dollars that we're talking about and also the structure. How is that dollar going to be paid? And that's the structure of the sale. But I think the little ad you just uh, ran about the picture uh, that you're uh, uh, writing putting up. a seagull in Nancy's picture. Yes, putting a seagull in. I think the uh, what we like to tell our sellers is to develop their own picture uh, clearly. And so what I mean by that, as I mentioned a moment ago, is they've got to determine the value of their products or services to their customers. They've got to think through the market that they're operating in the quality, the competition, what is it today, what is it likely to be in the future. Part of doing that is to accumulate accumulate some uh, external documents. Uh, what I mean by that is that more often than not, there is an industry organization that uh, the uh, owner may be involved in. You ought to get to that industry and find out what they're talking about, the industry. They usually have a a raft of statistics about the industry, and he ought to be aware of all that. And then finally, uh, he needs to review and understand his own internal documents. You'd think that an owner would be very well aware of his own internal documents, but you know when he needs to sit down and look at them from the point of view of a potential customer, got to look at the cash flow, the financial statements, budgets, forecasts, expense summaries, taxes. Uh, all the things that make up this business, not a, unimportant, is to do a little analysis of the operation itself. Uh, you'd think that an owner, in all cases, would know about how his business operates. But you find many times the owner has become removed from the details of the operation itself. So he's got to go out there and see how the products are made, look at the uh, receipts of the of the uh, incoming uh raw materials, if it's a manufacturer, uh, see how it all works, see what happens uh, when a customer calls, how the uh, product is uh, sold, look at his own payroll, his employee agreements, his loans and leases, uh, his customer contacts, his agreements with suppliers, that whole array of documents that he should be very, very familiar with, writing his own picture so that when he gets to the point where he's talking to a prospective buyer, he can paint that picture clearly for that buyer. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a lot of data that has to be accomp- a- a- accumulated, and uh, in some cases it might reveal to the company's own employees that the business is about to be sold. Well, that's, that's right. It may. But, uh, you know, as a general rule, uh, an owner doesn't want to reveal to his employees or his customers or suppliers that he's about to sell the business. Nevertheless, he should have a, uh, a a meeting with his key managers and obtain an understanding of what their hopes and dreams are and what their plans are to help expand his business. Now, he doesn't have to tell them at that point he's doing it in order to find out about selling the business because he should be doing that on a regular basis anyway and uh, uh, thereby uh, he need not tell them that the business is for sale. Indeed, uh, probably shouldn't be telling anyone it's for sale until he is really firm, maybe has a letter of intent, really serious. Indeed, sometimes one case 
the uh, business owner did not want to tell anyone that was for sale until they had a draft of the definitive agreement. And then uh, a week before it was to be signed, at that point, only at that point, was the owner willing to tell his employees and take that prospective buyer out to his major customer. That uh, is a serious problem. How, how does uh, these ESOP employee uh, ESOP programs uh, fold in? Well, we've not done a lot of ESOPs. We've been involved a little tell, bit. Tell our folks what ESOP means so they're not just confused. A, yes, and an ESOP is a, uh, a situation where the employees uh, get together and buy the company. And they buy the company under an ESOP program that uh, has some favorable tax benefits. Uh, it's a program that uh, can be used if you've got the right group of employees who have the motivation to do it. And if you've got an owner who's willing to part with a significant percentage of the business to an ESOP, more often than not, the business owner ready to sell would like to uh, take that cash and put it in his back pocket and be done with the situation in a month or two. I completely understand that. Uh, so in an ESOP situation, the old owner isn't paid out in cash? Right. Typically, he's selling maybe 30%, 40%, and then over time, the ESOP buys more and more of the company. So he doesn't get it all right up front. can happen all up front, but that's a little unusual. Mm-hmm. And in the last couple of years, how many ESOPs have you seen created? Oh, gee, I have not been deeply involved in ESOPs. Uh, to my knowledge, there have been relatively few, but, uh, again, we haven't done the ESOP ourselves. We're looking to sell the company to an uh, individual or company we're looking to buy. It. So why don't you tell me how you go to market with a company? You've got a motivated owner who's given you a uh, – retainer fee, you've got the valuations. Uh, what do you do then to, to sell this business? Well, you know, you get down then uh, away from the strategic concepts and into the financial concepts of how do we go ahead and and market and sell this company. And as I said a moment ago, the uh, most important issue there is price and price and price. Uh which, as I mentioned, includes the, the structure of that price. Uh, but there are a number of other factors that affect the price. Uh, for example, you must decide up front whether it's going to be an asset sale or a stock sale. If it's a small company, we find in some cases the small company has not converted to a C corporation. There's, they haven't converted from a C corporation to a, an LLC or an S corporation. If they're still a C corporation, uh, they may run into a little problem because they're going to be looking to sell the stock rather than the assets. If they sell the assets of a C corporation, they're going to wind up with a double taxation. They pay tax on the sale of the assets, and they have to pay tax on the resulting distribution of those assets to the owner. So being an ex-CPA yourself, are you still a CPA, by the way? Yes, I guess I'm still a CPA. Uh, uh, I don't practice uh, accounting any longer. But you, uh, you take the continuing ed? I take some of the continuing ed. I'm not sure I've got every one of those continuing eds. Okay, uh, so so you, as a CPA, and, and the, the guy has got a C-Corp, he's got to convert it either to... Uh, convert uh, it to an S-Corp or an LLC, right, mm -hmm. in order to... Now, that takes a time. It takes uh, 10 years to make that full conversion. Ten years, yes. really? Yes. We found, however, that most cases, most cases, not all, they've already done that. Their accountants and attorneys have advised them to go ahead and make that conversion to uh, an S corporation. Now, that's for the small, medium-sized business; mm -hmm. those whose values are five hundred thousand to ten million, perhaps. When you get to larger companies where the values are fifteen, twenty-five million. That's not so important there because, as a general rule, companies of that size uh, have had audits and uh, they have a number of stockholders, and the uh, it is easier to sell the stock of that kind of company. Mm -hmm. a small company, the buyer's attorney will be very reluctant to buy stock of a small company because of the variety of 
potential liabilities that the buyer may be walking into. Sure, uh, so they, it'll be an asset-only sale in that case. Right, they want an asset-only sale. Now, as I say, if uh, if the uh, if it's not been converted to an S-corporation, uh, the seller doesn't want to sell assets. If he has to sell stock and he can convince the buyer to buy stock, he's going to have to face up to the fact that the buyer is going to, going to insist that uh, we put a large percentage of the sell price into an escrow account just in case some of these liabilities turn up. Mm. So more often than not, as I say, we find that the smaller companies have already converted over to a, uh, a C corporation. Once in a while, however, that we run into a company that didn't do that. And so they've got to, in order to avoid double taxation, they've got to sell stock and they've got to be prepared for a large amount of this sale price into an escrow account until the buyer is convinced that there are no unentered liabilities, tax problems, employee problems that are going to show up. So they can accomplish that by converting to an LLC as well? Yes, yes, that's right. And why would that take 10 years? Just the uh, internal revenues uh, uh, rules about how it's going to take time to convert over from a uh, regular C corporation to an S corporation, and each year it becomes uh, more and more of it becomes goes into becoming an S corporation. Internal revenue, you know, they've got rules, and uh, uh, don't ask me to uh, give you the rationale for. Well, that's a big. That could be a big kick in the head for some people who right. aren't aren't aware of that rule. Uh, Let's see. Let me tell you, Mike, uh, you, you know, we talked about the factors that affect the price, and I've told you about the difference between an asset sale and a stock sale. I should mention that the, another factor, a couple of factors that affect the price is who you're going to wind up selling it to. If you sell to a, a large public company or you sell to a private company or sell to an individual, you know, if you sell to a large private company, a large, I'm sorry, large public company, you're going to probably get the best price because they are going to buy a company uh, on the basis of a strategic investment value. Uh, they've got a uh, uh, typically they will have the reason they're buying is because they see the synergies between the company they're buying and their own operation. And importantly, uh, they can get into some more reliable financing. And of course, if the company is profitable, they can see a, a accretion in their stock price there. Uh, you know, earnings to uh, a value there. Um, if you sell to a private company, you still may have investment value, might not be a public company. Mm-hmm. Uh, you'll get a good price, and potential financing is likely. On the other hand, if we sell to an individual, you might be looking at fair market value, and the financing is not certain. Iffy. Iffy, exactly. And uh, today, as I mentioned earlier, you're probably going to wind up with an SBA loan, and SBA these days is saying we want to see uh, good cash flow. The buyer's got to have direct related experience in order to get that loan, and so interesting. I thought that SBA was only really financing hard capital like equipment, buildings, land. Well, they do finance that, but they will they will finance cash flow on on a, a business. Uh, but they say they want to see the buyer with specific related experience, mm-hmm. and they want to see substantial down payment, uh, and they want to know that at the end of the day there is room in the cash flow. They'll typically want to see 1.3 times uh, the cash flow available. Uh, they don't not looking to take any risk themselves. Okay, I, I understand what you're saying. Uh, I was talking to a a credit union in town that was talking about loans and all they wanted to do was buildings, land, and equipment. Sure. Well, that's always, you know, the uh, most secure approach to uh, to lending. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's take a, uh, a, a another short break. And, again, if you want to call in and ask Walter a question in the last segment, you can call in at 646-595-4916. Let's listen to San Rule number 23. 
This is Pete Brown with Sandler Training, and I'm here to speak with you about rule number 23. The way to get rid of a bomb is defuse it before it blows up. Have you or your organization ever lost a sale because of a problem you could have dealt with earlier in the sales process? Sadly today, millions of salespeople and sales organizations are sitting on bombs, and they don't have to. Why deal with that anxiety? If you have a problem or a situation potentially with one of your services or one of your offerings, you need to bring that up before the prospect does in your sales process. Let's think of an example. Local delivery. If I knew that I was talking to a prospect that I thought local delivery would be a need they would have and I didn't offer it, how would I address that and more importantly, when would I want to? after we'd consummated the sale only to find out that we couldn't deliver on time? Of course not, that's anxiety. Let's take the stress out and address that earlier. How about an example of that? If we were in role play, Bill, local service is something that very often in this market is asked for and we don't provide it. Is that gonna be a problem? Bill would come back most likely and say, Pete, it is, and I would say, makes sense. So Bill, should we talk about that now to make sure that if that is gonna be an issue, we deal with it because it might not be a fit? Pete, we should. Bill, get started. Simple role play, but the example is, let's get that out on, and diffuse it early because by doing anything other than that, the truth is we are not being professional and certainly within Sandler's world, we're not being buyer-centric. Because think of the benefits. First and foremost, you're more relaxed. That 800-pound gorilla is off your chest. Secondly, you can determine, along with that prospect, very early if you're going to continue to invest time in the selling process. Because if you need local service and they don't have it, as that example alluded, you're done. No pain, no sale. And then finally, third, whether you realize it or not, that prospect will look at you very differently than the other salespeople or sales leaders that they encountered. Because you were willing to be professional and defuse that bomb early. Why don't we defuse the bomb? Well, sales leaders, you need to look in the mirror as you coach your teams and recognize there's two fears going on if that is not happening. The fear of losing a sale or the fear of dealing with the rejection, which is a comfort zone issue. As leaders, you need to help your organizations deal with both of these fears. But think about it. How can you go about changing this behavior when historically it's not been practiced? So my suggestion would be, think of three potential bombs that you would need to diffuse in the process. It could be creditworthiness, it could be financing, it could be local service, it could be delivery, it could be pricing. And then develop three questions around each of those bombs to be able to address early in your sales process with the prospect, and then ask those questions early. You can't lose what you don't have. Remember rule 23. The way to get rid of a bomb is to defuse it before it blows up. This is Pete Brown with Sandler Training. Good selling. This is Mike Roth again. I'm here with uh, Walter Becker. Uh, Walter, I'd like to ask people a question about problems in business. There are always a lot of problems, right? Always a problem. Right. And we have a, a philosophy <clears throat> here that simple solutions to complex problems are really rarely correct. And if you have a complex problem, you really need a complex solution to solve it. Perhaps you in your business have a had a complex problem that you came up with a complex solution for that might be applicable to many business owners. Well, I don't know that we have problems that are complex. More often than not, the kind of problems we run into in selling a business is what we've talked about a few times here today, is obtaining the financing. But related to the, uh, the your previous commercial here, Mike, uh, talking about the bomb that might go off, right. uh, you know, there are a number of bombs that a business seller should be prepared for. We'll call those bombs value drivers. The, the value drivers, the things that, that uh, drive the value of the business from the point of view of a buyer. So they run right back to the things we discussed briefly, 
profit and cash flow. We've got to get into that in detail to really understand a, a seller needs to understand his profit and distinguish it from the cash flow. We've run into situations uh, where some time ago I had a company that uh, we said, gee, he's making a lot of profit. He said, I've got a lot of profit, but guess what? I can't make the payroll next week. And I said, well, you know, why is that? Because look around, this was a ski shop, look around the shop. You've got all kinds of inventory here, and you've taken all your cash and put it into inventory, and you've paid off the vendors, and you don't have cash to make your next payroll. So profit is not key. Cash flow is the key there, obviously, and that's the bond that we've got to obviate. So it's cash flow <laughs> above profit. Yes, absolutely. Profit is can be uh It's nice to make a profit. Nice to make a profit. And you should have a profit regularly, but you better reduce that to cash flow because as I say, uh you can have inventory, you can have receivables, you can have uh paying off your payables very quickly, and the results are you've got no cash. So well, that doesn't make a business terribly saleable or attractive. That that's right. If you've not operated it and, and managed your balance sheet properly. So you've got to look at those kind of things. These are the bombs that you want to avoid before before you get to talking with that prospective uh, buyer. Uh, and not only uh, profit, but you've got to look at their revenue, their revenue stream. Is it is it constant? Do you have a continuing growth in revenue? And then look down right below the revenue line, the gross margin. How's that gross margin doing? Well, that's where you want to get into sales training. You want to call me. Exactly. You know, exactly. because if you got a, a prospective seller who, whose salespeople are selling at a low margin and not selling enough, you got to bring Sandler in and we'll fix that problem. Bring the Sandler in and get that revenue up and recurring. Recurring, mm-hmm. nothing like recurring revenue. Uh, it wasn't uh, too long ago. I had two companies. Both were IT companies, as a matter of fact, information technology and uh one case the uh the owner relied upon good service quick service to maintain his customer base mm-hmm. in the other case the owner had contracts with his customers he had 3 year contracts 3 year contracts so he good knew idea. that that recurring revenue was absolutely going to come when you talk to a prospective buyer obviously he's going to be a lot more comfortable buying a company that's got three-year contracts with his customers. Right, right. I was talking to uh, an IT company owner a couple of weeks ago. I don't think he's selling it because he's got a good business. But his model is you're going to pay us X number of dollars per month per employee with a computer for the next year, two years, or three years. So he's taking a a risk position that he's not going to go broke, that his people can fix or repair whatever goes wrong based on the number of users in the company as opposed to the other type of uh, small IT company which just gets paid based on the services rendered. Right. In other words, in that case, he's just getting paid to be available for some period of time. Almost like an insurance company. Right. Exactly. So that's, that's uh, you know, you've got to uh, look at that revenue, the recurring part of the revenue, and... Uh, Obviously, the next level down from that, Mike, I'm sure you talk about it in Sandler training, is the opportunity for price increases. Many mm-hmm. times we find an owner who has been running the company and hadn't sat back and said, wait a minute, can I increase these prices a little? Hmm. You think I should increase my prices, Walter? That's it. No, I've, got to, I've got to get to that this year. <laughs> well, you can, you know, you've got to be careful, obviously. You don't want to increase them such that you drive away your customers. But you've got to have price increases, particularly if you're selling products where your costs for the raw materials have gone up. Mm-hmm. So those are the kind of bombs, if you will, to use your, your term, the bomb to overcome. Uh, not only those bombs, but there are others of risk. Risk in the quality of your products and services. Are those, are those products and services integrated? And uh, risk in the current customer base, the number, the quality, and the growth opportunity of that customer base. Is that market scalable? Those are the kind of things I'm sure you talk about in Sandler training. Right, right. Let's talk about uh, if you're starting a negotiation with a potential buyer, uh, how good of a non-disclosure agreement or confidentiality agreement uh, should a seller have? 
Well, we always have a non-disclosure agreement. Uh, before we get into the detail, before, as I say earlier, before we send out the detailed confidential business summary, how good are they? Well, you know, it's going to be tough to prove if he told somebody at the last time he went to a bar about the company that's for sale, how do you trace that back? We've not had that problem. In the uh, 15, 17 years we've been in business, we've had the confidentiality agreement signed. We've never had a problem where uh, we found that somehow the information got out in the street that the business is for sale and uh, it was not uh, the owner's desire to have that out there. Right. The uh, Sometimes confidentiality revolves around uh, products. Uh, we've got a client that has uh, products in, in product development uh, that are new and different in their industry uh, that will give them a a real competitive advantage uh, makes that company worth a hell of a lot more uh, if it were to be sold and the the strength of a confidentiality agreement to me is really uh, critical well you get them to sign it it's just confidentiality agreement whether uh, he uh, sneaks and tells somebody about it is uh, difficult to prove but uh, the example you've given Mike about someone who's got a uh, new product that's always ideal because uh, you can uh, take the potential new product and perhaps do a forecast of uh, the kind of revenue and profitability that will be had from selling a new product or service, and that would, of course, uh, put down a, uh, a greater price, greater value for the company. Yeah, if we can get that into the equation early enough, even though there's no revenue, zero revenue on the new product. Uh, and, uh, you know, before we wrap up, I want to remember to do this, Walter. I, I like to give our guests a copy of uh, Sandler's newest book, The uh, 11 Sandler uh, Principles and Insights. Uh, this book has moved to uh, the number one position on Amazon.com for business and sales books, and it went, went to that position in both the United States and the United Kingdom. Uh, the book came out the uh, 24th. If anyone's interested in getting a copy of the book, they can always go out to my website, rothconsulting.net, and uh, find uh, the book on the Sandler Store button on the on the website. Well, that's very good. I certainly appreciate that. Uh, you'll have to tell me how you got this published. You know, we have put together a book. It's a, about 65 pages. It's uh, called Cashing Out. It explains this whole process that we've just been talking about. Uh, we have it available on our website, BeckerBags.com. Uh, right now, we're not charging for it, but we ought to do what you have done here is uh, public. We, we, we've developed kind of a process over at Sam to turn books into bestsellers. I certainly can uh, spend some time offline with you and share how that might work. We do have a slight advantage in that we have about 350 training centers in over 25 countries with over 250 centers, I believe, here in the States. Uh, and we've uh, grown a lot of companies. And uh, the philosophy that Sandler has is we're going to bring some value to the marketplace in public relations by bringing out these books. So over the next uh, few years, we're going to be bringing out at least one book a year. Terrific. That sounds wonderful. Good. Walter, any last comments before we uh, have to go? I guess I should make one point is uh, a seller should make sure that he is not the key man for his business, that uh, without him the business doesn't run. So make sure he's got uh, people, executives who are running the business, and it doesn't entirely re rely on his being there. Okay. That sounds like a really smart thing to do. And... Uh, Scott, why don't you take it away? Thanks for listening. If you have questions or comments, contact Mike at MikeRoth at RothConsulting.net or call Mike at 513-753-9400. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. 
More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.